Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. We recently had the opportunity to interview individuals who conducted research, operated, or who served as research volunteers on the old Johnsville Centrifuge, a.k.a. the Dynamic Flight Simulator, which was located on the now-closed Naval Air Development Center in Warminster, Pennsylvania. Why, you may ask, is Space 3D talking centrifuges? Well, there is a space connection. NASA used the Johnsville Centrifuge for training X-15, Project Mercury, Project Gemini, and Apollo astronauts, and even a handful of space shuttle pilots. In part three of our interview, we'll continue our discussion on the Johnsville Centrifuge by delving into the work done with female test subjects to evaluate their G-tolerance. Much of this work was done as a prerequisite to female jet pilots entering active duty in the military. We'll also discuss some other programs, including important work on validating instrumentation exposed to high acceleration, verifying the feasibility of night vision goggle removal from pilots' helmets prior to aircraft ejection, and creating and validating contingencies for pilots and co-pilots who entered into a flat spin in the F-14 Tomcat. Then we'll delve into how centrifuge test subjects were monitored, mostly non-invasively, whether anyone got sick riding the centrifuge, and finally, whether any deaths have occurred during centrifuge research throughout the years. The stuff Linda Fratone was writing, you know, this was the post-tail hook when we were going to integrate females into the squadrons and fly high-performance aircraft. We needed to understand females obviously have a different physiology than, than males and, you know, what what would the high G forces and the, the pressure breathing for G, because Linda was riding um, the Navy Combat Edge system, which gave us pressure breathing. Uh, there was a, a vest that, you know, you were fighting against a vest crushing you. That You know, there was all sorts of interesting things going on there. But, you know, I think it gave the Navy confidence that, Hey, females can can fly these electric jets and and handle the G forces as well as, and in some cases, better than the male counterparts. Well, and we were not just concerned about whether they could fly or have tolerance, but also, did they have the upper body strength? Right. Uh, for example, to eject. So uh, we had her fly into a simulated city, uh, and I will say, you know, we, we sort of take for granted the fancy graphics that we have on our phone. You know, and, and video games and whatnot. Uh, you know, some of the work that we did, uh, Joe Camerata did, was the very first time where you could have graphics, you know, displayed uh, in the gondola that allowed you to, uh, you know, simulate uh, the the type of display that you would get in a in a jet aircraft clouds and all the rest of that. And Joe had to create these pixel by pixel. When we were doing this in the middle and late 80s, we were we were at the front of this. Of course, now, it, it, you know, if you go back and look at that, 
it would look a little cartoonish, but this was this was at the front. And I will say that there are some differences between males and females. I have to say that the the women that we had in that study, we call it the gender neutral study, were tougher, more resilient, um, and could do everything better. Sorry, Steve. Than <laughs> my male volunteers. Over. So that this is Linda Barry. So that was a little bit because of our physiology. It, correct. I mean, our torsos, because our torsos were a little bit shorter, we were handle, able to handle the G's a little bit better. And um, overall, we we really did well in all the studies. And the, the one mission that we had to fly, I mean, it was really tough. It was like 24 sets of three different G's in uh, uh, like 45 minutes. And we had to do that like two days in a row. And, and we came through that with flying colors. I think the only problem we may have had was, like you said, we were talking about our uh, ejecting. So we were uh, thrown into a nosedive position, and each time our helmet was a little bit heavier. The helmet um, study, we were uh, we kept adding weights to our helmet when we were thrown into a nosedive, and I think that was the only issue that we had, that our necks were not strong enough. But all we really had to do to, to improve that was to make sure we did some neck strengthening exercises that would prove better performance for the future. So overall, yeah, we did pretty good and we were all pretty darn proud of everything that we accomplished in, in the six or nine months that we completed that study. You know, I, I will say that, uh... Most of, of the uh, the women that we had in, in that study uh, were moms. And one of the things that we sort of noticed, um, you know, anecdotally is that some of them, you know, at, at the lower levels of acceleration as we were training them, uh, would start to do instinctively uh, breathing that looked a lot like Lamaze breathing. And I've, I've seen that in, in, in other uh, studies that we've been fortunate enough to have uh, women volunteers that, uh, that just sort of happened uh, somewhat naturally. Interesting. So somebody, the, the original question somebody asked here was about research and, you know, the, while a lot of it was related to human performance, uh, me being a, a mechanical engineer and kind of more of a hardware person, that was one of the other things that it, in parallel with that stuff that was being done, the centrifuge was really the only place where you could try some things or play with some things. Um, we did a program on, they put night vision goggles on, on tactical aircraft pilots. You can't eject with night vision goggles hanging off the front of your helmet. So they developed a, a, a way to to separate the goggles from the helmet during the ejection sequence. So they were off when you when the seat would fire. But the question, one of the questions was, well, will, will this thing actually work if you were in a high G turn and needed to eject? 
Well, obviously, the only place you can actually do something like that is in a centrifuge to to try it and see if it works. Um, so there were some other projects like that that it got used for um, that weren't really focusing on the people, but more on the equipment and, and whether it would how it would function under strange acceleration environments that you'd experience in an aircraft. That it was really the only way to test them. Thanks for bringing that up, John. That, that's really a, a very important aspect of what we did, you know, looking at different types of equipment. Uh, we've been talking about F-18, but it, this occurred a little before I got there, but there was a big problem in the F-14 with flat spin. And because of the unique characteristics of the dynamic flight simulator, we were able to figure out uh, a way to get pilots out of danger if the aircraft got into a flat spin. Uh, and we were able to figure that out using the DFS, uh, which, as John was saying, you, you couldn't verify that, you know, analytically. Uh, and be able to get the confidence uh, that uh, air crew need to, to actually do it that way in flight. So that was an excellent point, John. Thank you. Right. One of the, the, the F-14 flat spin stuff was, again, it was before I was there, but basically, you know, if, if you saw Top Gun, that's, that's the way Goose dies is in a flat spin. Basically, the F-14 turns into a little centrifuge, and the pilot sitting ahead of, the air crews, both of them, are sitting ahead of the center of rotation. So it throws them forward into the instrument, and now they're out of position and can't eject. So the thing they worked, one of the things they worked on in the centrifuge was a power haulback. So the shoulder straps would actually haul the pilots and the, the, uh, the weapons officer back into the seat. So they were now in a position where they could actually eject. Um, and again, like Barry said, you know, you, you can't go up in an aircraft and try it and see if it works. Because, uh, first of all, every time you do it, you lose an aircraft, and who knows how much air crew you lose. But in the centrifuge, you could do it dozens and dozens of times a day. And from what I was, just Linda Lips, from what I was told, the loss of consciousness project was uh, along the same lines about F 14 pilots. They trained us to do simple tasks, knock this out, and then tried to see how long it would take us to be able to get up to that same uh, level of ability in doing those tasks. Now, of course, the Navy, when it vacated in 96, there was a private company that ran or attempted to run the centrifuge for another several years, but then it was finally ceased operations in the early 2000s. Where is uh, Hygie work, centrifuge work done today? Is that just only at Wright-Patterson or at least, you know, I'm not aware of a lot of other places now that, that have this capability. Well, there, there, there are lots of places. None of them has the arm length that we had at Warminster, but in the United States, uh, there is a, a new type of dynamic flight simulator that's at Wright-Patterson. There's also the old centrifuge that's in San Antonio. Uh, so when I... Now, I uh, have to do research uh, to qualify things that require high acceleration. Uh, we either go down to San Antonio or we go up to Dayton. In other countries, 
There are facilities in the Netherlands, there's facilities in Sweden, in the UK, in India, in Singapore, in Japan. Uh, so there are uh, other places throughout the world uh, that do have uh, these types of high acceleration facilities. Uh, some of them are used just primarily for training, though some of them uh, are certainly used for research. So I wanted to ask John a question about monitoring of test subjects. How would how were people monitored? Like what kind of stations were there? Can you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, well, basically, Barry, some of this Barry would certainly be better to talk about because he's the one that was at the other end of the wires. That They were just plugged into us. But basically, there was always an EKG running on everything. There were pulse oximeters. Depending on what other things they were doing, uh, they were monitoring a lot of other functions. But basically, all those pieces of equipment, a lot of them had to be installed in the centrifuge, and then they would send their signals out through what's called slip rings, which is just basically a, a way to send a electronic signal through a rotating joint. And they went out to a, a room where there would be a flight surgeon and Navy corpsmen that would be sitting and they would basically be monitoring along with, if it was a project, the project people would be monitoring. And, and basically you're, you're in constant communication. There's a video feed watching you and they're watching your your heart rate and maybe your breathing rate and your pulse ox. And what else am I missing, Barry? What else would you guys be running well, it, normally? Yeah, it, it depended on the project. And we were not just looking at the physiologic response. Uh, we were also looking at the mechanical response. So we knew what the G-suit was doing. We obviously knew what the centrifuge was doing mass pressure, breathing through a mask, and so on. So we could see all the mechanical data uh, as well. Uh, some studies, we also looked at brainwaves, uh, EEG. We looked at what the eye was doing, uh, like eye blinks. Whenever there was a new device that, that came out, uh, we would try to figure out how we could use it in the centrifuge without breaking it. So... Uh, <laughs> We, uh, we looked at things called uh, transcranial Doppler, uh, which allowed us to look at basically fluid flow in the head. Uh, we looked at muscle activity. Linda Lips was talking about, uh, I think she was uh, talking about like evoked response. Uh, so that's uh, another EEG type of monitor. Typically, uh, the types of things that we would do uh, were not invasive, but in the early days, they also did some invasive things, you know, looking directly at blood pressure, for example. And we could do blood pressure, you know, in, in sort of the standard way as well, but we had to, you know, activate like the pressure cuffs and do that automatically, like you used to do in the old days when you go into the doctor's office with the uh, sphygmomanometer and they would squeeze the bulb. The EEGs that uh, I recall, they were kind of invasive. You're sticking probes on your scalp and they had to yeah, but, kind of scrape that away a little bit. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they mean, put airplane glue on your head. They, they glued the yeah, yeah. to my head with airplane glue. Yeah, it wasn't quite airplane glue, but it certainly felt that way when we took it off, didn't it? 
It most certainly did. <laughs> yeah. Um, the technology's come a long way since then, but, you know, in order to get good signals, you had to, you, you basically had to use sandpaper, you know, get the upper layer of, uh, like, dead skin cells so you got good contact, and you would literally have to glue these things onto the head, and then to get them off, you'd have to use acetone. And I did this first thing in the morning, and it ruined my hair for the whole day. I just want you to know how dedicated I was. <laughs> I still have a scar behind my right ear where the EEGs were connected. Boy, Barry, you know, I'm, we're hearing, like, the, you know, the ugly truth now about the, what these volunteers went through. Hazardous so, duty pay. Um, <laughs> you know, That's right. Some of us didn't get hazardous yeah. duty pay. <laughs> And, and, and that was a shame. We did have committees for the protection of human subjects then, but uh, and the hazardous duty, let, let me tell you, you know, for all, all of the, the, the work that, uh, you know, John and, and Linda and Steve, uh, you know, went through, you, you couldn't give them a lot of money because that would be an incentive to do things that, in other words, feel like you were coerced because you just wanted all that money. Um, <laughs> for civilians, you would basically get time and a quarter, which was a good deal. And for military, you get like an extra, I don't know what it was then, but let's say an extra $100 a month, whether you did it once or you did it 30 times. So it's not a lot of money. Yeah, I think when we were there, when it, towards the end, I think they remember the um, – First class petty officer was getting about two hundred bucks a month as hazardous duty pay. Well, until tonight, you. I didn't know any civilians got any hazardous duty pay, yeah. so this was an eye opener. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, it broke up. It broke up the week. It broke up the day too. I mean, you were doing stuff that very few humans got to do. So yes. I mean, that that in itself was enough pay for me. Yeah. But he took the money anyway. Oh yeah, I took the money. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for fun. And for science. Did anybody get uh, sick on the centrifuge, and, and who had to clean it up? The most, of the, most of the folks that I recall getting sick were, because I, I, I used to train um, the pilots. We used to call them the Nuggets coming in from the uh, RAG, you know, the F-18, you know, the, the beginning pilots from the Navy. We'd bring them up and do GTIP, and they'd be there for, you know, we'd get a it'd be a week of different squadrons coming through. I recall mostly it was the active duty pilots because these guys went in. There was a bit of a swagger, and you know, <laughs> you know how could a civilian be telling telling me how to do this? And and they just weren't used to the you know moving your head around. You know, if you move your head around in there, your the Coriolis effect starts getting crazy, and right. you know you're. Your brain is saying, hey, there's something wrong. Your stomach's going, I don't know, maybe it's poison, right? So you throw up. But you could you could actually watch them. You watch their physiology change. You start sweating and temperature's gone up, and then they throw up. I, that, I mean, I, I know there were some subjects, but they were that was usually a rare thing. Usually it was the active duty pilots, my experience. Did any of them win G-Ugly Award? I've heard of G-Ugly. I have one on the wall. I got G-Ugly. I was G-Ugly all the time. <laughs> Even at 1G. Even at 1G, that's right. <laughs> we did give uh, folks nice certificates. Right. 
it's just a GZ. I mean, it's as as the the G's are building up and you know pushing the blood down your spine, your skin starts to sag too because it has weight. At three G's, you know, if your arm weighs three pounds, it weighs nine pounds. So I mean, your skin has a weight. It started moving. I was going to say somebody told me one time it's that it's uh, ten years per G. Yes. So if you're at five G's, it adds fifty years. What you're going to look like in fifty years? That's exactly. And that, right. I mean, that's really what it did it. You look a lot older. Oh, geez. <laughs> now I know what I'm going to look like at 120. <laughs> that's but okay. just, you really just look, you look a lot older. Everybody looked older. Yes. I knew what I was going to look like. I was 35 years old, and I knew what I was going to look like when I was 90. It wasn't a pretty picture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and in the in the early days, folks would uh, fly with the lights out in the gondola, and we'd use an infrared camera. Oh, that must have been neat. Uh, so not only did you look old, uh, we also made your hair gray. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have a – this is kind of a dark question, but did anybody actually die on the centrifuge or – were there any near-death type situations no. on it, or anything like that? No, we had we had a guy that wrote it that had some pretty crazy hallucinations after oh, wow. his first or second ride. He wouldn't get back in. We got an astronaut quality physical every year, and granted, you know, when you're in tachycardia at high G's, anything could happen to you, but they mitigate it. Through the use of the physicals, through the what we, they called the ACPHS, it was the panel that looked at all the protocols that we were going to ride. And then we had the engineering. You'd have, you know, I was the subject advocate. We'd have the researchers, and you know, it was a, a few-hour meeting where we went through everything and you know, did a lot of what ifs and and you know, why do we need this? And there were some hard questions asked, but no, nobody did it when we were there. I don't think anybody died in an NABC centrifuge. No, none of the centrifuges. The thing that we were most concerned about, musculoskeletal issues. If you lose consciousness, you go limp. If you're going limp and the centrifuge is spinning, then, you know, you could easily hurt your neck uh, or hurt your back. Uh, and when you start to wake up, sometimes... If we get you to the point where you're really out uh, and you start to wake up, you can convulse. Uh, and that's sort of like the body is kick-starting, uh, like an old Volkswagen. We call it the funky chicken. Yeah, and uh, that actually helps you recover faster. So it's possible, you know, your arms could flail out and hit something and whatnot. So we would, we would take... Uh, extra precautions to make sure that uh, things were padded and that if uh, you do lose consciousness and your head slumps down and you had multiple sets of eyes and everybody could stop the centrifuge, uh, including the person in, in the gondola. It might seem scary and it sounds like Barry just tortured people. Um, <laughs> We did do everything possible to make sure 
that it was safe and that we mitigated the risks and that people were fully informed about what could happen. You know, on the, the flight deck or down in the control room, if people were behaving in a way that we thought would get them into trouble, we would stop. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D. Make sure to join us for our next episode where we conclude our discussion on the Johnsville Centrifuge. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.